That was uh, me using a monopod <laughs> in order to, sorry, a, a mono selfie stick in order to close my door because <laughs> I am that lazy. How about that? <laughs> As evidenced by uh, what the story I was telling Shivam before, where I actually had the iOS uh, read this screen accessibility feature, read me Brandon Sanderson's news story. <laughs> oh, that's just so. I could not put up with that. Yeah. Now, you wanted to hear a bit of it? Is that what you were saying before? I would be... If you want to exercise those vocals, man, uh, you are more than welcome oh, yeah. to be my guest. Yeah, here, let me exercise these vocals. Hold on a second. The light in his hand vanishing. He fell to his knees, holding his head in agony. Uh, Davriel said, <laughs> to send a glance to him, noting the red smoke fading from his eyes. Uh, uh, uh. I'm Phil DeLuca. I'm Shivam Putnam. <laughs> and we are Commander in. Good God, are we Commander in? Thanks for listening, everybody. We put a spotlight on community issues, but never, ever talk about three <laughs> banned topics. Religion, <laughs> politics, and Hearthstone. <laughs> you know what, Shivam? A lot of people have been coming up to me and asking me, Hey, Phil, how can I support the show? How can you support the show, Phil? Shivam, I'm happy you asked, because what I'd like to tell people is that they can just do something as simple as tell a friend. Mm. There's nothing more effective than a warm referral for somebody to say, Hey, here's a podcast I think you would benefit from listening to. <laughs> Even if that benefit is just bringing a smile to maybe three times an hour. <laughs> Who knows? I wonder if it's possible for me to actually get through an episode without laughing. No, it is not. It is not. <laughs> I also tell people, Shivam, that they should visit us on YouTube and comment, rate, and subscribe. I believe it's ring that bell is what the kids are saying these days. I shouldn't say kids. That makes us sound old. We're not old. Ring that bell, smash that button, and play us to the very end. I'm old, Phil, and you've got a decade on me, so I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for a while there, Sheldon Mennery was saying that he, he had the only podcast where the ages of the hosts add up to more than 100. I was like, no, Sheldon, we three added up to more than 100. But now we're, we're sprightly, young uh, and sprightly. Now we're only in our 80s. <laughs> I also tell folks that they can leave positive reviews, especially if they like the discussion about the combined age of the hosts on the show. They should go up to wherever it is they get their podcast from and leave us a positive review. Leave us a five-star rating, maybe. Maybe four if, you know, you really don't like the uh, discussion of ages. We do about once a year, and we're coming up on that time, get together and read a whole bunch of stuff. Shivam, I also tell people that if they want to take the ultimate step and support us, they can visit us at patreon.com slash commander at mtg or commanderinmtg.com slash donations, or they can go up to GoFundMe, search for Commanderin, and use the one with the C logo. And then they can join the ranks of esteemed patrons, just like our guest this week. Oh, this is a good one. 
So a little bit of background. We have a pledge tier that we like to call the insane tier because when we created it, we didn't think anybody except somebody who was insane would actually donate at that level. And we have been very lucky, as longtime listeners know, David Mitchell, he donated at that level and he came on and he talked about newbies in magic. And he's now our editor, which I hope turns out to be a pattern because this week we have another insane patron. And that's Colt Baldridge, who wants to talk about evaluating and upgrading the power level of your deck. So Colt joined our Patreon community a few months ago by pledging at the insane level. And we had met previously at GPLA and was it also GP Vegas or just GPLA? The second time was GP Vegas. The first time oh, yes. was some event. I don't I can't remember what it was. It was down at some hotel and event center, but it definitely wasn't GPLA. Was it Strategicon? I think it was Strategicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we first met at Strategicon. Yeah, that's right. I was running the Commander Tournament. You came yeah, by. Yeah, and I played 50% of all the Brawl games I've ever played with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Welcome, Colt. Well, thank you. It's uh, quite a pleasure to be on here. Thanks for working with us to define this topic. It was quite the process. It's one that we've sort of, over the years of doing the podcast, we've sort of uh, hinted at and kind of tilted at, like, oh, maybe we should talk about power levels at some time. But we never really had as clear a concept as when you worked with us. I'm glad to realize your your dreams in some form or fashion, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest for a second. My decks come in two power levels. One is pathetically bad, and the other uh-huh. is wins once every decade or so. Your Hapatra deck is actually pretty fierce. Yeah, my Hapatra deck is like god tier level. It's a that deck wins a lot. It's really good. <laughs> Shivam, what do you think is god tier level? Uh, every time I've played the deck, I've won. Okay, that that's reasonably god tier level. That's pretty good. <laughs> okay, it's true. I've seen him smash multiplayer. We did a little bit of one on one on a trip that I made up there in February in uh, 2018 and he smashed then it was really uh, truthfully it was not what i had expected because i think i've played shivam's soldier deck as well oh yeah you've played me in other decks which have just been like i don't know getting turned into tomato paste <laughs> yeah. by whatever you're playing and then i pull out hapatra and it's just like yeah the poison tide just comes there was no keeping up with that well i think phil has played seen my joyra deck in action so he could be a decent arbiter deciding who would beat who, but that sounds like an invitation to build something to play against you for when I come to GPLA next year. Yeah, it really does. So <laughs> I'll have to keep that on the back burner in the next couple of months. My my Hibata deck is probably like mid to upper tier, but it's not like a Narset level deck. It's not like the old school Leofold decks or anything. It's good enough. You know what I'm saying? It's like it wins. It does as it's supposed to do really well and it's fun to play, but it's not like in San Aquarium, because I don't know how to build those decks. <laughs> well, I, I can I can probably help you along with that. Isn't that what we're talking about today? It is, in fact, what we're talking I about. I almost feel like that's what we got that we brought you on for. Well, how convenient! Look, looks like it's your lucky day, Shivam. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so the listeners know who you are? Uh, how'd you get into magic in the first place? See, I got into magic a few years ago. About I want to say about a month before Origins came out. When I heard that my niece was playing some sort of game called Magic the Gathering, and I I come from a background of collectible games. That's another story for another time. But I decided, you know, it's a way to to do it and get involved and spend time with her. And well, she never, I don't think she ended up getting with the game. And I ended up making the worst financial decision of my life 
but it was worth it. Had some good times. Wait, so you only got in during Origins? That was like three years ago? I know. Surprising, huh? That's crazy. Uh, how long does it seem like I've played then? Well, I mean, I don't know, but the thing is, like, when you're talking about, like, hardcore power level stuff, like, three years seems not long. Well, my experience with collectible gaming goes as far back as about when I was a kid, because I used to play Heroclix when I was in college mm. and when I was growing up. So there's definitely a background of collectible card gaming, and it's some of it kind of just transfers over. When did you get introduced to EDH? Ah, I think that was a, my first EDH deck was the Marin Clan Toth deck. Well, there's a powerful deck. Yeah, it is so good. It's such a good pre-con. Like during the first several months of playing with my friends, we would play 60 card casual standard decks and multiplayer. So going from that to Commander, which is something designed for multiplayer, it's just like opening your eyes for the first time and just seeing how <laughs> great of a format this can actually be. And so I think I've been hooked on it ever since. That's a very familiar story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called Cardboard Crack for a reason, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so your first EDH deck was the pre-con for Marin? Yeah, it was the pre-con for Marin. I think I ended up doing some tweaking on that, you know, tossing a Ulamog that I had and other affordable stuff, but... <laughs> Tossing an Ulamog into marriage. It was, I, I legit pulled it from my very first pack of Battle for Zendikar. That's amazing. Beginner's luck is a thing. But yeah, I, I gradually moved from doing Marin and just kind of reanimator to Atraxa. And that turned from Super Friends to <laughs> oh my. Stacks to more Stacks. Yeah, I see you moved down the power level. <laughs> well, I think it really, I eventually kind of moved from commander to commander, but in November of last year, I think, I started with Gingitaxius, and that eventually got changed to Muzio, which eventually turned into Joyra, which then turned into Sahili, and so that's how we got here today. I actually like that progression a lot. I like all of it. Well, Gingitaxius just seems mean. I've never been a fan of that. I don't really like the Praetors in general, but I'm definitely here for Muzio into Joyra into Sahili. Because Joyra was definitely going to be my new artifact deck until Sahili came out. And then I was like, well, I'm good here. Yeah, Joyra and Sahili are fantastic artifact or are commanders because they're red and blue artificers. And we've been asking that for, for years. But they definitely work years and years. very, very differently because Muzio was more of a combo commander. So that, yeah. that migrated. Joyra just went from hard control combo to storm with a, with a few things mixed into it for big mana storm leftovers from Muzio, but yeah it's it was very much storm yeah she's got a lot of velocity in her deck so i could totally absolutely see that she's case. very she's very explosive i think she's won on as soon as turn five before so i think that's personal best <laughs> i started building up a like a sideboard of things to just take out all the storm cards and then put affinity into joyra and then they made sahili and then i i praised watsi because I could just build this deck now. And so I did. Yeah. Longtime listeners know that I've been wanting to build a Thopter deck for a million years. And while my Brea Thops deck is basically exactly that, it ended up just being an artifact good stuff deck. So with Sahili, when she came out, I was like, well, here we go. Here's going to be my dedicated Thopter town. And it's amazing. I don't think it wins very well, but I think that's why we're here for. I used to have this feeling that Brea was just going to be the final form of my commander journey for artifacts, but <laughs> I think Sahili's going to get broken down with all my other decks for a cube that I'm working on. 
This is just kind of a nice last hurrah. So listeners, you know, we normally thank three of our patrons and uh, we did say last time we would do the funny name game, but uh, we decided to have an entire show with one of our patrons. So you'll have to tune in next time and we'll read all the funny, funny names. We should have a pretty good show lined up for you next time, too. And so, Colt, you wanted to talk about evaluating and basically upgrading the power levels of a deck. So why don't you take us in and explain to our listeners what you meant by that? All right. So, dear listeners, I want you to close your eyes and imagine walking into your LGS (laughs) and you just sit down for a casual game of Commander and then you come across that deck. You know the one that I'm talking about. It's the one that steps on you without a care of the world (laughs) and it leaves you broken, dejected. And utterly defeated. So you just got creamed in a game of EDH. How do we fix this? <laughs> so today we're going to take a conceptual look at what goes into defining a deck's power level and how we can tune up your deck in order to make it perform a little faster and be able to keep up with something a little more than 75%, but probably not CDH territory because... I'm not that crazy. He is crazy, though, listeners. I've played against him. (laughs) The deck you're describing, of course, is uh, Shivam Sapatra deck. Oh, that sounds like a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Which will be on display at GP Oakland. Now, you're going to be at GP Oakland for like a day, right, Shivam? Yeah, I was planning originally for being there for two days. But as it happens, uh, it's also my wife's birthday uh, in the middle of that week. And we decided, uh, well, she decided she wanted to uh, have her party that Saturday and... You know, some things you just don't argue with. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be at GP Oakland on Sunday, and I look forward to meeting as many of you as I can, and it should be a good time. Listeners, if you want to see his Hapatra deck in action, please visit him there. Find him there. We'll be tweeting his location. So one of the first things you wanted to identify, Colt, was why are you playing this deck, right? So if you're evaluating power levels, that's the first thing you want to understand, right? Yeah. So... It's kind of a conceptual approach you want to take when any kind of building your deck. How does it win? You know, sometimes it will be through vanilla combat damage. Sometimes it might be executing a combo. But you want to start getting into the mindset of what is this deck strategy and how can we optimize it so that it does the strategy as best as you possibly can. For example, looking at my Sahili deck, it wants to generally try to drop some early ramp quickly in the game and then drop more artifacts so then you can drop something what should be as a late game bomb relatively earlier in the mid game so that's how the deck wants to win and perform so now it's a matter of picking the right cards that facilitate doing that as quickly as possible so listeners this time around we are focusing on winning because the entire topic is evaluating your power levels and trying to improve them But you might also want to play this just to have fun, like you're trying to make something very specific happen, like a crazy combo or get to a crazy board state or have Cormus Bell go off and kill all the swamps, (laughs) uh, etc. Or uh, you just want to run around with a tribe, right? And that's that's fine, too. I actually do a lot of that in particular brawl because of uh, the Ixalan connection and dinosaurs. You might also want to tell a story. I know, Shivam, you've built a couple of decks about stories. I love using my decks to try to do, like, narratives or stories like that. Yeah. How exactly does that work in a card deck? Well, because, like, your commander is, like, the focus of the story, and all the cards are kind of like... Like, for instance, uh, one of the friends of the show, Russell, he built a Dragon Ball-themed deck where all of the cards represent different characters or places (laughs) from the Dragon Ball saga. It's that sort of thing where you're like, okay, well, I built a Liliana deck once, and 
it had all four of her demons. It had all Liliana theme cards with her art in it to kind of tell her story. Mm -hmm. And it was just this, it's a deck that tells the story of this character. And so you're telling the story. It happens kind of randomly because, of course, you're shuffling a deck of cards and playing them as they come up. It does exercise your skill as a storyteller because you have to kind of weave it all together into a, a coherent tale. With the right commander, you can do that. Memnark in the Machines is another one. And then, of course, you could be just testing your deck. So you're playing it to find out what cards work, what synergies work. And in those cases, the have fun, tell a story, test, and probably some others, you're not necessarily trying to win. What we're doing right now is focusing on how to make your deck more capable of winning a game of Commander. Huh. Novel idea. Yeah, what a novel idea. And for uh, listeners who haven't met Colt yet, or played Shivam's Hapatra deck, Colt's decks are brutal. <laughs> and incidentally, my Hapatra deck is a tribal snakes deck. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's the pretext for all those negative one, negative one counters. <laughs> so really, once you settle on one of those and we've settled on, we want to win, right? Right. Really, ask yourself, why are you playing this deck, right? These are some of the questions we were talking about way back when we had a Facebook chat group. Like, how does the deck want to win? Is there an established line of play? I think you're the one who phrased it that way, Colt. Yeah, I think so. For example, you look at Marin, for example. Well, Marin wants to bring things back from back from the graveyard to the battlefield. So how can we better facilitate that? Well, you can start by putting poor cards at mill into the library and dredging them so it gives you a greater suite of creatures with which to reanimate rather than just relying on things that you've had to discard it or have died during the game. So yeah. that's just one way of optimizing around your commander's playstyle, for example. Like I said, with Sahili, you can just play... Your mana rocks also double as producing an extra mana since she gives spells affinity for artifacts. So you want to take advantage of that situation and play cards that either put more artifacts onto the battlefield or things that you can just quickly play. Oh, that's clever. Other considerations, just like how does it respond to threats? And this line of questioning came from the principles you've laid out here. I labeled those because I was having trouble categorizing them properly as operational characteristics of your deck. But I am also a process nerd. And so, <laughs> so I think about things like this. Yeah, no, it's like I was looking at the show notes and I was like, wow, this is a really technical and interesting way to break down deck design. And it seemed really fascinating because um, the way you laid it out with your ideas of how to upgrade the power level of deck is something that I had never considered because I'm always looking at a deck kind of on a one-to-one, -one, like, oh, I'll take this card out and put this strictly better card in. But it feels to me like you guys have been looking at this more of at a holistic level, which is uh, pretty interesting. Well, looking at, uh, looking at cards that are strictly better than others is definitely a way you can increase the deck's power level. I think that it's just your approach and what you described, I guess, as mine and or Phil's approach would be something that's two sides of the same coin. Like you definitely are going to have to go in and pop open your deck's hood and take a look at, OK, what exactly is this card doing and why should it continue to exist in the deck when I have something that's absolutely superior in every way right here? And so you swap that in and hey, look at that. Your, your deck's power level bumped up one percent. So there's definitely merits in looking at it both ways. Now, what were these operational characteristics that you defined? So when looking at how to tune the deck in a more power level, we're going to look at four general characteristics. The first one is your deck's speed. This usually has to do with 
the deck's ramp package or the mana curve and how we can put cards in there that will generally lower the curve and increase the deck's ramping in the early game. Second is how much access the deck has to the resources that it needs. This might be in the form of impulse style mechanics or more draw spells or more tutors, more specifically ideally tutors, but it has to do with being able to get the card you need at the right time that you need it. Uh, the third one would be responsiveness. Now, threat assessment is an inherent part of the game, and you're going to have to deal with threats. If your deck is entirely built on the linear strategy, then either you haven't yet taken into account that your deck is going to have to answer threats, or you're playing CDH, which you probably <laughs> can't learn anything from this episode. <laughs> but then the fourth is the win conditions. The things that you're going to use to close out the game... Like I said, this ties into your overall conception. How do you want to do this? Are you going to place a bunch of big creatures and beat them in the face more often? Do you want to try to deck them out in one turn with an infinite blue sun zenith? Are you trying to do something a little more out there with your commander decks? It just depends on what you want to try to do with the deck. Now you mentioned it, sometimes your deck is on the linear strategy. What did you mean by that? So linear strategy... Our deck wants to reach a particular conclusion in winning the game, so you can try to min-max that and put all of your deck's 99 cards into winning that game, but if you do, if you go for that strategy, inevitably the deck might be ill-equipped to deal with, say, I don't know, the opponent's commander hitting the battlefield, or that Blightsteel Colossus that I just cast. You got a Path to Exile for that? No, you didn't, because you invested all of your deck into digging out your win conditions. So while you definitely do want to have something that quickly brings the game to a close, you still have to pack in your essential removal, your essential ramp, your essential card draw. So we are working within those 70, 60 or so cards that are outside of your deck's bread and butter. You know, like the essential 10 cards for ramp, 10 cards for card draw, and like five cards for, for spot removal. Oh, the commander wise. staples. Yeah, like outside of those commander staples, like every deck has to have those. Otherwise, you start becoming deficient in certain areas that your deck needs to perform. <laughs> Don't you call my decks deficient? I would think my deck's performance is just fine, thank you. If you're extrapolating that I just called your decks deficient, perhaps that says more about your decks than mine. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I understand what you're saying, though. It's like, assuming the goal here is you want to make a deck that wins, then yeah, you're going to have to actually start using the formula that make commander decks work, right? Like, you need to have your ramp, your card draw, your wraths, your ways to actually win the game. Yeah. With that in mind, you need to consider, for instance, I guess the first thing here would be uh, speed, right? Like, the speed of your deck and how to make it actually play in an efficient manner, because... One thing we've all learned is that when you're playing Commander, if you don't have mana on the table, you are not going to get very far. Not very well, and you can't always rely on dropping Soul Ring on turn one to get you ahead. So we got to mitigate that variance somehow. So way you can start doing that is by increasing your deck's ramp suite in a few different ways. I think the first and most straightforward way would be increasing the quality of what kind of ramp pieces you're using yourself. Now... This will depend on whether you're using green or non-green ramp, and that will usually dictate the course of what things you can and can't use. But also, instead of just increasing the quality, you can also increase the quantity of the deck. 
if I want a deck to be particularly fast, and I picked this up from a guy I play with, if I want a deck to be abnormally fast, I include somewhere between 15 to 16 ramp pieces instead of just the normal 10 you wow. need for the deck to work. Wow. That's a huge percent of your deck. Yeah, depending on whether or not you think Storm the Vault is or isn't a ramp spell, Sahili has like 15 or 16 pieces that's just that generate mana just so I can hit them. I can draw into them at the early stage of the game that I need. And then the quality of life on that ramp suite is improved because most of it's one mana or two mana or a couple of three mana pieces. So they're relatively easy to stick down quickly. I mean, I guess it's a little in Sahili, it's a little bit of a special case, especially since all of these pieces we're talking about are artifacts. And that also just works with Sahili's inherent. Uh... Yeah, the one the one that gives it affinity for artifacts. Oh, my God, that's just nuts. Yeah, just so that the audience knows what we're talking about here, we're talking about Tahili the Gifted, who was just in the most recent Commander set, and her first plus one is uh, create a 1-1 one, one servo token. Her second plus one is the next spell you cast this turn costs one less to cast for each artifact you control, which is wow. to say it gives whatever your next spell is affinity for artifacts. And then her negative seven, which says uh, for each artifact you control, you create a token copy. Those tokens gain haste. Exile those tokens at the beginning of next instant. Pop a servo out. Pop a servo out. Affinity six. <laughs> I mean, affinity is pretty insane. And the fact that she gets plus one anyways off that is pretty baller. Absolutely. If it was a minus one, that, that would completely change the nature of her versatility. But no, that there's no downside to just absurdly ramping out a free worm coil engine. <laughs> <laughs> but that also means that almost every artifact piece of ramp you have counts as one extra mana for the purpose it of It does. So somehow Mana Crypt now taps for three mana, and they said he couldn't get any better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about the uh, quantity, right? But then uh, we're talking about the quality? I guess we. I should probably start with using the pre-constructed decks, since most of the listeners will have at least a conception of what the, those might, the quality of rocks that those will have. You have Soul Ring. That's one that basically goes in every commander deck tops one mana for two mana it's pretty solid so that's kind of the baseline that you want most of your cards to be what i've seen in looking around for artifacts you generally have unconditional mana tapping for any color you want for three mana so that's good to have as a couple of them like commander sphere is really solid but i think that being able to get the mana earlier in the game is more important than getting the color of mana you want and that's why i would prioritize running say mindstone over a commander sphere is because that one extra mana that costs less does really get you far and you can take that even more extreme toward the lower end of the curve with say mana vault it may not untap during your untap step and it may cost more mana than it's actually worth to get it untapped but the fact that you were able to stick that down in the early game and then get three mana for that critical play that you needed definitely puts you ahead of everybody else and it's worth it in the end i do love mana yeah Vault. and there's yeah. probably several cards in this deck that are specifically designed to go grab mana crypt because mana crypt is just soul ring on crack it's ridiculous in addition to the quality of the ramping and the, of course the quantity then we're also talking about the mana curve yes with sahili it's a little different because her whole game is about playing big mana creatures when you're not really supposed to during the turn so she kind of bends she bends the rules quite a bit on how many big mana thing or creatures are in there so 
it's kind of a little bent for her, but it, your mileage may vary. There's a reason why the CDH decks run a lot of one drops. Yeah. Yeah. In general, though, with like your mana curve, the more ramp you have, obviously, the easier it becomes to drop those giant spells. But if you're aiming to make a low to the ground, streamlined wind machine, you probably want to leave a lot of the nine drops at home. Now, interestingly, Shivam, your deck, which we'll get into the stats for later, and listeners will provide the links to each of these decks in the show notes. You can always go up to deckstats.net slash commander and MTG and see all of our decks there. Colts is in the guest decks folder, and Shivam's, of course, is in the Shivam's decks folder. Now, you're not taking advantage of the mana discount that she provides as much as Colt is. I look at the mana curve, and your mana curve, Shivam, is 3.63 average, and Colt's is it's a minor difference, or so it seems. It's a 3.72 average. And that's because, Colt, you're, you're using that discount, aren't you? I am quite heavily relying on that discount at times, because I run... I run nine cards in what in the big drop slot, and so re- I'm rarely ever hard casting those for the retail price. Because Sahili's there, <laughs> why why else would they be there? That's why I'm dropping Bloodsteel on turn whatever it is. But that that <laughs> kind of creates a monkey's paw situation because if Sahili isn't on the field or I don't have the cheap mana rocks that I need at the mm-hmm. time, that means I could get stuck with a lot of dead cards in my hand. So. It's kind of a high risk, high reward, and it kind of needs the pieces to fall together at the times that it needs. It's like this deck is definitely yeah. one that's very reliant on a strong opening hand that can dictate the course of the game. My focus was definitely more on, uh, again, telling the story of Sahili and the idea of Thopters and Servos and making a lot of tokens. So I almost <laughs> didn't take her second uh, power into consideration. Like, if you look, my my version of the deck doesn't really have a lot of top end. It has a lot of smaller combo-y type of pieces. Yeah. But uh, that's also because I, when I'm like thinking about deck building, I get very tunnel visioned, right? Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to build Thopter Town and that's what it's going to be. And then I'm like, I totally like missed all of these edges that I could have just actually won with because yeah. I want to uh, make a pretty gimmick on the table. So some of the speed improvements that Colt has had to make, it's not that you're not including Mana Vault, but Mana Crypt is faster even than Mana Vault, isn't it? There's just no comparison, guys. That one additional mana that you're not spending sticking Mana, mana Crypt onto the field just means that you can you can abuse it in more ways than you could with, say, a Soul Ring. Because like, you bounce it back with a Master Transmitter or a Paradoxical Outcome, and it doesn't tax your resources. I didn't even think about that. Oh god, Paradoxical Outcome. It's very good bounce fodder. And then, when you consider it, you have to pay 4 mana to untap Mana Vault, whereas Mana Crypt just untaps for the low cost of an average of 1.5 life. That's true. Or you run Voltaic Key and never have to pay that untap cost ever. For the mana vault, sure. It even works on mana crypt too. Somehow mana crypt taps for three mana now. Because you tap two for the mana vault and you pay one, you float a colorless for uh, the voltaic key and untaps mana crypt again, it taps it, now you have three colorless mana. If you are going to streamline your deck though and you've got a vault, you should definitely upgrade to a crypt. Think about your turn one, right? Your turn one is like land mana vault versus land mana crypt and soul ring and a three dot <laughs> at gp vegas i played this game there in forsyth and like my turn one with joy where it was like sulfur falls mana crypt soul ring chalice on one elephowing chalice on one it was just like that's what it can do <laughs> <laughs> he ended up blowing me out at the end oh, but God. hey it's 
That's life. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. That's gross. My my Isochron Paradox lock could not get past his Oblivion Stone. Oh wow. Oh oh god. Wow. Paradox. And you look at the relative difference in the the cards. Like Mana Vault um, before the reprint was about twenty five dollars, and uh, Mana Crypt even that one mana difference. But then the untap cost right a hundred thirty seven fifty for a Mana Crypt. If you're lucky enough to have a mana crypt, then you can definitely make this substitution. I do not have a mana crypt. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would recommend having to to bite that bullet and save up and buying it because then you don't have to worry about buying a mana crypt again. I think it's one of those it's one of those <laughs> worthy investments. That is absolutely fair. It is. If you care about this, then you should do it properly. Like I really do want a mana crypt someday, but that someday is not not <laughs> it's not this day it's not this day that's for sure one of the other uh speed improvements uh we were talking about before the show started is retrofitter foundry which is the one mana artifact to either uh create a one one's colorless servo or sacrifice that servo to create a one one colorless thopter or sacrifice a thopter to create a four four colorless construct and those only cost two one and then nothing except the addition of the tap compared to efficient construction which is the four mana enchantment from uh, either revolt where um it's uh, whenever you cast an artifact spell create a one one colorless thopter artifact creature token with flying now why is efficient construction a speedier or rampier card than Retrofit or Foundry? This largely has to do with context, because in a vacuum, I don't think you, you could say that these two side by side is strictly better than the other one. But I think, at least in my Sahili deck, the efficient construction is going to be able to pop out Thopter tokens quickly if i'm being able to play a lot of spells through low cost artifacts or playing sahili's affinity ability so let's say you have the efficient construction on the field and you play a signet this turn and you cast a hangerback walker this turn and the next turn you cast a lotus petal and it's popping out thopters throughout the entire process which since we're playing sahili essentially costs one mana off whatever big thing you're about to drop. It's one of those enchantments that creates its value by clogging up the board quickly, and then you can drop your Ulamog, your Blightsteel Colossus down for a lot cheaper than what you normally would be tapping it down for, even with Sahili yeah. on the field. So it's one of those that can just is a long time investment payoff. For the retrofitter to match that, you have to pay one mana for the retrofitter and then two mana and tap it to create a servo, then untap it and then pay one mana and tap it to sacrifice that servo to create a thopter. And so in the end, you're paying four, but you also have to have an untapper. And that's just to match it the first time you cast another artifact with efficient construction. It's really, this is one that both Shivam and I were surprised by. This is really good. The ability to turn 1-1s into 4-4s four isn't something to be shied away at. Right. The Sahili deck cares about how many artifacts are on the field rather than how big their stats are. And so I think that Efficient Construction would just be better at doing that than Retrofitter Foundry. Yeah, the fact that you can turn your 1-1 one, one into a 4-4 four, four is, uh, is is gravy. It is. You just like Thopter Spy Network's on the field, so I get a 4-4 four, four every turn. Or you place or you place both of these in the same deck. <laughs> and then with Brutaclad you turn everything else into a four four. Oh yeah, oh, Brutaclad. Yeah. 
turn all your treasure tokens into four fours and just swing out at them. Oh, I love it. He's so weird. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next category? Being able to get all those cards you need at the right time. So kind of how we look at ramp as green versus non-green. To the surprise of exactly nobody, we're going to look at access of your cards in blue versus non-blue access. Blue's the best color. <laughs> so not only do we have to consider blue access versus non-blue, and of course blue access for the most part is the best access. It's really hard to beat it. Blue basically gets down to sometimes less than one mana per card that you draw, and it's ridiculous. It's incredible. But also tutors. Now tutors definitely give you access to the cards you need to win. They create a more consistent play experience, but a lot of people have problems with them, not just because you spend a lot of time shuffling, but also because it kind of goes against the ethos of both what the rules committee seems to want from the format, which is a, a format kind of based on exploration and discovery. And also Jason Alt, who is a friend of our show, he's been on it many, many times, he has a 75% deck ethos where you basically don't use tutors to get at the pieces that you need in order to win. You just let the deck produce whatever it does. And you can also use that as uh, you're only playing a deck that's as strong as your opponent's deck, but that's, a, that's another deck type entirely. That's like a clone deck and a thief deck and stuff like that. The tutors category, which I confess I have a couple of decks that use tutors, and the tutors, there are just uh, a couple of tutors that really, every time they're printed, you should probably pick them up as quickly as you can. And that's Demonic Tutor, Vampiric Tutor. Now, these are black and not necessarily great for blue or red, but in terms of overall access, nothing beats the black tutors. I think that most people's gripes with tutors is, isn't necessarily being able to go grab your card, but it's that people are playing the Demonic Tutors and the Vampiric Tutors and... I can't think of a situation in which someone goes, taps out four swamps to Diabolic Tutor or something, and the rest of the table is not happy about that. So I think it's mainly being able to grab your win con for one mana, or for two mana, that puts people on tilt. Yeah, as you put it, you just bite that bullet. And so we, we recommend after a reprint, but you're just like, go ham, you just go well, buy them right now. I, I think, I'm not telling people how to make their financial decisions, but I am saying that Demonic Tutor is not a $40 card anymore, and that I might be picking one up myself. And for the purpose of Sahili, there are a few tutors in blue. War of Invention, for instance. Yeah. War of Invention is wonderful. Or like Arkham Dagson lets you sacrifice artifacts to get other artifacts. This, uh, listeners, when you're building your deck, of course, you want to consider which tutors. If you know you really need a sorcery, for example, then maybe you pull a, a tutor. You don't have to go for a demonic tutor. You can get one that just go fetches a sorcery. A lot of transmute cards are good tutors. There's a wealth of cards for you to choose from that don't carry a 40 or even greater price tag. Access also means card draw, which brings us to our first card in here. Is it Charm is a pretty good card. It's a respectable card. Yeah, it's an instant. It costs blue and a red. You can choose one, so it's modal, and you counter target non-creature spell unless its controller pays two. Eh, 
It's okay in a pinch if your opponent's tapped out. You, you can use Is It Charm to deal two damage to a target creature for two mana. That's kind of inefficient. Or you can use it to draw two cards, then discard two cards, so you're looting two. And in some decks, that's really useful. It could be. Is It Charm's kind of respectable. It's not the strongest in a format where Battlecruiser is more of a norm. It's definitely more of a Constructed or a Cube card, I would say. Yeah, and if you're looking at it just for access, which is what I think most people will look at it for, the flexibility is cool, but two damage isn't going to kill most creatures in Commander, right? And most people are going to have the two mana to pay for the counter spell effect there. So let's upgrade this a little bit. What do you think of Brainstorm? Brainstorm's really good. Apparently there's ways you can brainstorm wrong. It's that technical of card. You can brainstorm wrong? Apparently so. Oh yeah, dude. If you brainstorm without having the ability to shuffle your deck later, you can put yourself into a brainstorm lock. You can I mean, Brainstorm is an incredibly technical and powerful card for one that literally just says draw three and then put two back into your deck. But compared to Is It Charm, it's cheaper. It lets you look at more cards. It lets you not have to throw your cards away. It can just put them back on top to uh, either protect them from uh, being pitched or to get them out of your hand, right? Yeah, it can throw them away to protect your hand. Like if somebody's casting Thoughtseize or Windfall... You can take your two most important cards and put them back on top of the library and then draw them back again. It's just the possibilities of these just increase the more you think about it. And it's it's a crazy, <laughs> stupid card. And it's ridiculously cheap. Like, if you don't have a brainstorm, go buy your brainstorm right now. Yeah, it's really effective. Remember, you're drawing three cards, cards like the Locust God that care about <laughs> drawing cards. One of the flavors of Niv-Mizzet. You're drawing three cards and putting two back. It's just, it's just so good. You should be running Brainstorm in every blue deck, pretty much. It provides card advantage, and it provides smoothing over your next two draws, because you know what your next two are. Unless, of course, you use shuffle them away, but that's your choice. Yeah, that you're talking next level stuff right there. It's just great. All round. <laughs> yeah. Five stars. For smoothing your decks, you guys have two cards. The Antiquities War, which I think comes from your deck shivam yep just for the listeners to know all of the cards that are the before half come from my deck and all the cards that are the improvement come from colts <laughs> i feel like there's a theme here but uh for this access improvement one of the things is that uh we look at things like card selection card smoothing and i had the antiquities war in my deck the saga from dominaria yeah that for the first two chapters lets you look at the top five cards of your library pick an artifact from them and put it into your hand and then the rest onto the bottom. Now, that's a good card in an artifact deck, but it's, you know, limited, it's slow, it costs a lot, and uh, it's after you get to turn three, you just have to pitch it, you don't get to use it again. Now, Colt's improvement was uh, the old standard Sensei's Divining Tongue, mm-hmm. which is literally like one of the fundamental cards of Commander uh, because it just lets you smooth forever. Right, like it always lets you look at the top three cards of your library. It lets you ensure the ones that you're picking. It's basically the best card selection card ever printed, and it's cheaper than the Antiquities War. It's only one mana as opposed to three and a blue. Now, on top of that, not only is it one of the one of the best card selection cards in the deck, arguably, but you can do some pretty fun shenanigans with it. So, did you know? Sensei's Top can be a wonderful engine card, so all you have to do is you need, on the battlefield, a co- an artifact cost reducer and either a Joyra or a Vidalcan Archmage or something to let you can trip off your artifacts. So what you do, you have your Sensei's Top in hand, 
You cast it for zero because Ethereum Sculptor takes one off the cost. So you cast it for free. Joyra triggers and you draw a card. And so then you can tap the Sensei's top to draw another card and put it back on top. And because your deck is full of one and zero drops, you play the card you just drew. Draw the Sensei's top again. Play the Sensei's top again for free. Draw another card. And you just build up your storm count like that, just drawing as many cards as you possibly can. It's it's beautifully disgusting. <laughs> there's, there's just no no better description for it. I've seen that. It's horrendous. Oh, it's horrendous. That's just gross. If you let those those three cards stick on the battlefield, uh, yeah, you done goofed. Yeah, no, that's just that's just gross, man. That's like, that's not right at all. It really is. <laughs> it's horrible. It's gloriously brutal. It's, but it's probably not fun to watch looking from the other end of the table. That is exactly what Crosan Grip is for. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Split Second, man. It violates the, the rock, paper, scissors fundamentals of this game. It's what defends us against you, Johnny Combo, guys. Against you, period. <laughs> against you, yeah. <laughs> against me, personally. But yeah, generally speaking, though, the theme of the access improvements here is you want to try to make sure that your card draw, your card velocity is as fast and as efficient as possible. That means more repeatable effects, effects that give you more looks at more cards, um, effects that draw you more cards more quickly, and then also restock your hand. And like top is one of those just iconic cards that'll just get through your deck really quickly and get to what you need to do. Because step one was ramp, right? You get all your mana, you build up your base. Step two is making sure your hand is stocked to actually win. And then that leads to step three, what you called responsiveness. We're playing a, pol- a game of politics and with multiple players, and so you're always going to have to have some cards set aside for threat assessment. Now, your mileage may vary, and this kind of depends on your store's meta, but you, you'd want to have some general purpose, get out of jail free cards, and you can follow the same principles you did with the ramp package with your removal suite, generally by picking better removal cards that are lower down the curve, and something that can deal... A little more versatility. So, for example, Counterspell counters anything for, for two mana. That's a pretty solid bar against which to compare. Meanwhile, you have, say, Hero's Downfall or Murder. That's three mana for instant speed, unconditional creature removal. That That's pretty solid. Hero's Downfall is a respectable card. But instead, you could run a Doomblade or a Go for the Throat that sacrifices some of that versatility for being cheaper and less mana intensive. So I generally would have the majority of mine being two mana removal spells, your arcane denials, your counter spells, your go for the throats. And then I definitely would have at least a few, maybe three or four cards that are unconditional permanent removal, like your your Chaos Warps, your Heroes Downfalls, your Vraska's Contempt, just something that can get rid of anything that you need. And then depending if you're playing... If you're playing a green-based deck, you might want to just have some unconditional permanent removal, like your your Terastodons and your Scour from Existences. Just something of that high-caliber level you can put a one or two of. Yeah, something... It's not, it's not a single-target type removal. Generally, you want something, because this is Commander, that removes multiple different types. Oh, yeah. Multiple permanent removal is even better. So, in general, you want to make sure that your responsiveness suite, if you want to think of it that way, has creature removal in it, 
artifact or enchantment removal because, you know, maybe you have a lot of enter the battlefield effects and torpor orb would ruin your day. Such a good card. <laughs> and land removal. Always have at least one or two pieces of land removal because if somebody puts a maze of Ith out, that just stops the game and it changes the dynamic and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Our Storm of the Vaults flip over into Telerian Academy and you realize how big of a yes, mistake sir. you've made by not getting rid of that enchantment when it was a lot easier to remove. Yep. Or somebody's got that guy's cradle or the, you know, I mean, lands in Commander are just so powerful that there's, you never feel bad having that one strip mine in your deck. But, That's right. I mean, it's good to look at cards like uh, Cleansing Nova or like Merciless Eviction that give you multiple options on things to wipe out at once. Yep. Because um, you never want to be caught off guard. Two of those cards that uh, remove multiple types, but uh, kind of along a different axis. Now, Shivam, you're packing one of, frankly, my favorite cards, All is Dust. Yes, sir. A sorcery that uh, causes each player to sacrifice all colored permanents he or she controls. I love that it says sacrifice. Yeah, that's really cool because... Eat it, indestructibility. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, if somebody has an Avacyn out, this does not help them. Well, they have an Avacyn in the graveyard now. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the ways to improve this card is to make sure that anything it removes is basically one-sided. Yeah, so that is the thing. All it does definitely hits everybody, but in an artifacts-themed deck, I thought it wouldn't be so bad. However, Colt had Old Faithful, the card that I hate maybe <laughs> the most in all of EDH, yep. Cyclonic Rift. Yeah. The telltale sign of having seven untapped islands that says, do not hit me. Yeah. And the reason this is an improvement is because all his dust is seven, but it's symmetrical. It affects everyone. So if you happen to have a few more colorless permanents than your opponents do, that's fine. It's at sorcery speed, though. And even though it causes them to sacrifice their permanents, when you drop a cyclonic rift on <laughs> at the uh, end of the uh, last player to your right's turn, and all permanents you don't control have gone back to their opponent's you're hand. You're a monster if you do that. You are. You're an absolute monster who is probably winning the game. And now that I have this untapped seven mana because I cast this at the end of your turn, I'm going to put even more problems on the table. <laughs> I hope you can dump your hand to seven hand cards again. It's instant speed, one-sided or uh, not your-sided removal. It's it's, it's amazing. It, it so doesn't need to be $20, though. No. Come on. Well, it hasn't been reprinted in quite some time, and it's also, like, the most brutal card in ED8 that is in is every deck brutal. that can run it. Yep. I hate Cyclonic Rift. <laughs> and Cyclonic Rift also has that modal ability of just being a two-mana bounce spell targeting one thing, because sometimes you just need to sometimes. clear the path of that one thing yep but god i hate this card i've seen that much much less than uh when it's overloaded but i've still seen it and of course when a person does that you have to expect that they have some way to recur instance from their graveyard because oh yeah no one ain't no one throwing away a cyclonic okay, rift for two uh, note to self fine cyclonic rift recursion thanks <laughs> phil because you know what makes a cyclonic rift even better more cyclonic rifts <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the next turn after they've recovered. Now, this one is one I saw early on, and it can be abused, but it requires a lot of setup. And it's, uh, Shivam, this one's yours, right? Yeah, so the other example we chose was uh, from my deck, Spine of Ishsa. 
the seven mana casting cost artifact, which says when it enters the field, uh, destroy target permanent, and when it's put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return it to your hand. This is a card that I like because it's got utility in multiple different ways, aside from just being the raw destroy. You can do all sorts of weird recursion tricks to get it to come back and forth, but it's got that one little problem. It costs seven. Yeah. You know what's better than seven? Not seven. The strict upgrade, of course, is Chaos Warp in these decks that we're talking about. Well. The uh, two and a red instant, which is like the second most ubiquitous card next to Cyclonic Rift, which is the owner of target permanent shuffles it into their library, then reveals the top card of their library. If it's a permanent, they put it onto the battlefield. It's instant speed, unconditional removal that gives them some random bonus off the top. If they even get that. Yeah, it's a top. It might be an instant and they might just get nothing. Or it might be a land or some other random thing. It doesn't say it has to match the type. Hmm. This is just like way color pie broken. Yeah, like I can't think of a single time I chaos warp something away and it shuffled and revealed something even worse. I have chaos warped into somebody's Ulamog before. That is a miserable feeling. Yeah. Yeah, you called it a strict upgrade, and I don't consider this a strict upgrade at all. No, it's not a strict upgrade. It definitely isn't a strict upgrade, because seven mana for unconditional permanent removal seems to be about standard, but you're making you're you're definitely making a budgetary cutback with Chaos Warp, but 19 times out of 20, it's not, not as bad. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not a strict upgrade as much as it's much more efficient usage of removal it is an inclined side grade that is that what you call it <laughs> yeah that's that's a little bit better and because i've seen chaos war backfire all too often oh yeah but it's so good when it does <laughs> but i've seen little significant threats like acidic slime get replaced by in which in a bounce deck like a rune deck or something get replaced by a um avenger of sendikar and that's <laughs> that's terrible oh no oh it's terrible i mean I love it. I love that so much. Yeah. I'm here for that. But also, oh no. Yeah, it's it's just very sad. And I've also chaos warped something away and both done this myself and had somebody else do it where they just chaos warp the same card back into play. Oh. And if you do that with a spine of Ishsa, then, you know, they just got another removal for free, basically. That, uh... Not quite for free because you had to spend three mana and a card to do it. So That's super rough, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i'm just wincing thinking about that yeah these are corner cases but they have cdh man every corner is a case yeah but yeah absolutely like if the choice is if your 99th card is either spine of ishsa or chaos warp most of the time it's your chaos warp the Sahili deck only runs two dedicated pieces of removal which is surprisingly super low because normally you're supposed to run at least five like the other one's duplicate which is in there because it's abusable by cost reduction, but that kind of shows this deck is not exactly what you would call the most well-rounded deck because it does cut that kind of corners in favor of playing massive beaters that they theoretically can't overcome. Right. So your mileage may vary, but yeah, definitely a CYA, guys. And then the final category, we won't go into too much because it's big creatures and this is basically what Commander is about. And I know there are some combo players who are like, oh, I have no creatures in my deck. Well, that's great. Oh boy, do I have a win con for you. <laughs> so what you do is you take your Mycosynth Lattice and you make everything artifacts. So now all your spells are basically free. And then on top of that, you go get yourself a Darksteel Forge, which makes 
all of your stuff indestructible. And then on top of that beautiful cake, you then just drop your Nevenrol's disc, which you untap this turn because of course you got Voltaic Key early, and then you just blow up everybody's permanents every turn. It it sounds like we're in magical Christmas land, but we're not. No. <laughs> this, this happens. Is, this is what it's supposed to do. This yeah. is why Planar Bridge is in, the, in Arkham Dagson are in the deck. Arkham Dagson is a very good card. I love it. He's so mean. <laughs> He's so disgusting. Win conditions, like if you're looking at big creatures in this particular deck, and I think it's because you take advantage of the um, affinity power that Sahili has. It's Blightsteel Colossus and or Eldrazi Titans. Blightsteel, of course, we never recommend people play. As soon as somebody detects or suspects you have a Blightsteel Colossus, usually that's when the bribery comes out. Oh, no. And in this particular deck... Oh, no. <laughs> there's a lot of things to bribe. Yeah, there's a lot of things to bribe. And Acquire actually pulls Blightsteel Colossus out, too. Yeah, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a tricky mistress. Like this. <laughs> uh, let's see, other notable inclusions in here. You do have the Eldrazi Titans. You do have your Worm Coil Engine... Mere Battlesphere is another cool one, if you can it get is. that bounced on and off the field. Uh, Platinum Imperion, he's out there. He can save your life total from just being completely destroyed. And then we also have Combustible Gear Hulk, because if they get greedy and they don't want you to draw three cards, you just mill your three and hit them for 20-30 damage. I think Combustible Gear Hulk is a way underplayed card. It's it's a pretty fun deck. I mean, especially if you can abuse it with recursion, like uh, on a Felden deck, it can be really great. I'm just happy to see that these Gear Hulks are pretty cheap at post rotation. Yeah. Also, some more cheeky wins. You can also get infinite mana through brings Bright Hearth and Basalt Monolith, and then if you manage to stick a Planar Bridge on the field, you can just go get all your permanents. But at that point, you're just winning more. At that point. <laughs> Yes, you are. Although it is possible to get infinite mana and then not win the game, and then you just have this big target on your forehead. I have definitely been there, where you sit there and your engine's going off, and you've got all the velocity, and you're turning through your deck, and you're building up infinite mana, and you don't have anything to play. Mm -hmm. You run out of gas, and it's just like, oh man. Oof. Guys, guys, please don't kill me. That's why you both put Hangerback Walker in. Oh, yeah. Nothing like an infinite, infinite Hangerback Walker that then dies and spawns infinite Thopters. Oh, yeah, dude. Hangerback Walker and Walking Ballista. Yeah, even if you don't even have to do infinite mana with that one. It's just very good because you can just plus one for Sahili and just plop that on the field for one mana. <laughs> and then if it gets big to the point where they decide they have to kill it, they wipe it off the field and now you have plus six to your affinity so you're definitely casting that worm coil or that ulamog you've been holding in your grip for free next turn yep it's just a lose-lose situation now another win condition is to uh, deck your opponent which means to cause them to draw a card and they have no more cards to draw neither of these decks really does that though i think both are kind of timmy in that they like to use big creatures to smash uh yeah the muzio deck was more more about generating infinite mana and then blue sunning the table I think Joyra did a little bit of that too. Yeah. Like, I think my Moltrotha does have an infinite win combo, but I mean, that's, that's definitely more of a corner case if you're trying to get somebody to be decked, although you're definitely running infinite mana with that strategy. Yeah. So you kind of know what you're doing at that point. Yeah. And we're only bringing these up, listeners, because whatever deck you're building and looking to improve, you want to consider all of these these options, right? So you're making the most of your big creatures 
you're making the most of trying to deck your opponent or even esoteric win conditions like I count uh, Approach of the Second Sun right. or Felidar Sovereign and, you know, all the other standard crazy janky win conditions, Triskaidekaphobia. Cool. In general, we have these, uh, this falls under our tips for tuning category. And generally, the more effective your deck is at these characteristics that Colt laid out, the speed, access, and responsiveness the better it'll be. So you upgrade your ramp package. You can get pretty deep into this. Like we were talking about a $140 card and uh, we don't recommend that. But if you happen to have one already, then cool. I know Colt actually goes out and buys these cards. So your mileage may vary. Selling all your bulk rares with the GP definitely helps. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you can sell all your bulk rares, like just cards you'll never ever use and get a mana crypt for it, do it in a heartbeat. That's actually how I did get my box diamond. That was right after the, the the reserve list buyouts, and so I just had a bunch of stuff there or at one of the vendors, and they had a, a Mox Diamond there for $300, and I was like, well, I'm already getting 200 from these trade-ins, so 100 bucks, and I don't have to worry about buying a Mox Diamond again. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Oh, man. And Shivam, you scored at a GP, didn't you? Oh, dude, I got like 500 bucks off of random crap from my... Uh... At GP um, Santa Clara last year. Yeah. My uh, Mox Diamond was very lucky. It was labeled at 30 bucks at the store right when the buyouts were starting. And I picked it up and I was going to buy it. And then the dude came running from the back to try to mark it up to $60 because the price had just changed. The guy at the register had already rung me up and I'd given him my money and we're like, yeah, gotcha. That felt good. <laughs> Like, I have never in my life had a real-time price change happen to me like that before. Yeah. But, boy, I totally just beat him. That's some save-by-the-bell-level shenanigans right there. Yeah. And that was when it was $30, not $3 million. <laughs> yeah, it's it's expensive now. The other tip is you establish and reinforce your strategies, and you do that with redundancies, of course, and also with tutors. Very much so. And then as much as possible, and uh, kind of lately the command zone has been talking about this too, you lower your mana curve as much as possible. You remove land that enters the battlefield tapped as well because you're valuing speed over flexibility in most of those cases. And uh, sometimes, you know, you want your guild gates because they provide that flexibility, but you are sacrificing speed in order to do it. That is true. Yes. Wow. Listeners, between the two of these guys, there were 35 shared cards. So these were the cards that were the same, which means <laughs> that so much of the deck is different. And we have that comparison. It's actually really fascinating to just go through the stats. Isn't it? Yeah. It's neat because of how different the same commander can lead to totally different paths, but also to see how you can optimize this kind of deck yeah. and make it significantly more powerful. Oh yeah, definitely looking at this list right here, there's definitely a shell going on among our between our two decks. Like it has the same bread and butter materials that would probably go in your archetypal Sahili deck, but then once you get to the differences, you just see how they split off into two different territories right here. Yeah, it's really cool. Yours is running at two feet? Wow, that's bold. We're using the deck stats tool that allows you to compare two decks. And we'll include the link. It's probably up on the video if we have a video. And we'll include the link in the show notes, both on our Patreon and on our homepage. So take a look at that. Now, now Shivam, you're just very quickly, your deck strategy and the, the breakdowns? Yeah, so my general idea with my deck was to make a whole ton of Thopters and then use Brutoclad or some other types of combos to turn them into giant 4-4s or into half a Wormcoil engine and then just kind of overwhelm with 
a ton of token forms or also use things like the Thopter of the Meek, uh, I mean, sort of the Meek Thopter Foundry combos and other just like fun little kind of cutie little artifact combos like that. And so, Shiva, when we talk about the breakdowns, we're talking about like how many card draw cards you have, how much ramp you have, creatures, and so on. Yeah, so uh, in my Sahili deck, I've got uh, seven card draw cards or dedicated card draw cards, about 10 ramp cards, 29 creatures or so. 12 instant sorceries, 4 enchantments, and about 15 utility artifacts. But realistically speaking, most of the deck is utility artifacts. I mean, the general idea, though, is just I wanted to pick fun cards that were cool and related to Thopters and had a few little intrinsic combos, but not really. It wasn't meant to be a deck that just comes and slams, but it's so easy to convert this from a casual deck into just a competitive deck, even though... (laughs) <laughs> hilariously it was like oh let me just switch out 70 cards in your deck <laughs> yeah so uh colt what's your deck your Sahili like well step one you drop mana crypt step two and then you ramp like crazy and then there's profit after that <laughs> that's basically what it does but yeah yeah you ramp early game you drop Sahili, put more artifacts onto the field and then cheat one of your big threats out into play so in comparison to Shivam's, my deck runs either 10 or 15 pieces of card draw. It depends on how you put it. Uh, in my deck, 10 of them are dedicated toward drawing cards. That's the purpose in the deck. There's a few more in there that will also draw cards as a cherry on top, but that's not specifically why they're there. <laughs> right. So we have 10 slash 15 card draw cards, and you have 16 ramp pieces. This is mainly to just dramatically increase the speed of the deck and to be able to draw into as many mana rocks as we need because here not only do they tap for mana but their very existence also helps when Sahili is out in the field so yeah it can't hurt to have more of those. Then you have about 10 to 11 cards that are your big bombs that you're going to try to cheat into play. They're your Eldrazi Titans, your Blightsteel, your Darksteel Colossus, those those kinds of big cards. Those are the ones that are going to win you the game if your opponents can't deal with them that is quick enough. Uh, you have six tutors. You have a couple more in the forms of lands. You have your Inventor's Fair and your Teleria West. They can also grab things. You also have your Planar Bridge. That's more of a part of your combo engine, though. Yeah. And we have about seven to ten pieces that are just designed for your combo engine. That's going to be your stuff like your Rings of Bright Hearth, which can not only interact with Basalt Monolith, but it also interacts with your Planar Bridge, your Sahili, your other Planeswalkers, your Planar Bridge that can go and grab any of your big permanents into play, Mm -hmm. your Voltaic Key that can untap other artifacts, and just things that will (laughs) generally grease the wheels so that the deck gets out of control quickly. (laughs) You grease the wheels with the grease made by your enemies. With all that phyrexian oil going everywhere oh that that's that's a little much man (laughs) wow well these are both awesome decks and i think over the holiday season when i have some time i would like to try to play both of them i've always wanted a thopter deck and i've always wanted to play a good deck (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think I look at the Thopter deck, and for all we were talking about how Shivam has some of the, the slower cards and whatnot, this is a really good deck, and it looks like a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. No, this deck is no slouch. I mean, I forgot to mention, I put Perforos in there, and every time you're bringing tokens out and put Perforos, uh, well, oh, that's ow. just going to uh, end games quick. You're mean. Colt, you have more fetches in here than I have seen in a very long time. I think there's like five of them in there right now. All the blue. Yeah, it's uh, all the blue ones except Misty Rainforest. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's five fetches in there. Couldn't stomach the green. (laughs) Nah, I got a friend of mine. I was like, hey, should I put more more fetches in there? Yes, of course. (laughs) What kind of question is that? My goodness, I've never played with a Mox Diamond before, so that'll be exciting. Yeah, it's a that's a tricky one to play because you got to make that decision of if you want to pitch your your turn three land drop for a turn one Mox Diamond. Yeah. Sometimes it can be worth it. So, listeners, we hope you've had fun listening to this show. It was a blast to record it, and thank you, Colt, for coming to hang out with us. Well, thank you. You guys are a blast to hang out with too. <laughs> this was uh, this was a lot of fun. This was a real interesting show. Remember, guys. You can be on the show as well. <laughs> you just have to be a little bit insane, and Colt definitely fits that profile. Just a tad. <laughs> so, listeners, if you want to donate to that level and uh, tell us what to talk about and come on the show with us, then uh, head on over to patreon.com slash commander at MTG and check it out. We can also do the insane tier level through PayPal at commanderandmtg.com slash donations, or you can go to the GoFundMe and donate there. You can reach us by going to our website, commanderandmtg.com. Our email is cast at commanderandmtg.com. You can find us on all of the social medias by searching for Commander and MTG Podcast. This episode was edited by David Mitchell. Our theme song was created for the podcast by Nate Burgess. Our logo was created for the podcast by Mr. Picto with assistance from Kelly DeLuca. You can find more art from Mr. Picto by going to mrpicto.co.uk. Special thanks to Tech Wiz's Jesse Thompson and Graham Frank and to Justin for the server space. Commander at MTG Podcast is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy. It has not been approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property of Wizards of the Coast. Copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC. Special thanks to Mike Condon, editor of the Brothers War podcast, for the guitar version of our theme song. Colt, if people want to reach you and talk about this amazing Sahili deck, how can they do that? Well, listeners, you can send your questions, comments, crazy conspiracy theory threats to at thy madre on Twitter. And that's thy madre, as in your madre. T-H-Y Madre. The one in the same. At thy Madre. <laughs> and then, Colt, perhaps you're aware of this. Every once in a while, we have a guest on. And when we do have a guest, we ask them to take us out. Would you take us out? Yeah. Commander and MTG. Not always accurate, but still pretty entertaining. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>